Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane. So shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Maura's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family at Direct at gmail.com, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Maura Murray. Welcome back to Missing Maura Murray. I'm Tim, here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am doing fantastic. How are you today? I'm doing great. And in this episode, we speak with someone who's been in the community for quite a long time, um, but hasn't really been so much vocal. And uh, his name is Mike, and he actually went to UMass Amherst back at the time when Maura Murray went missing. I'm very excited about this guest because it's a continuation of the people we're having on who are members of the community, but they're not exactly vocal members of the community. They do a lot of the research behind the scenes. They interact with each other, but they really don't put themselves out there that much. And Mike is a great example of this. He was right there at UMass in 2004. He was a reporter for the newspaper there, uh, The Collegiate. He is a very uh, big supporter of The Collegiate. He mentions it a couple of times. It's uh, pretty pretty amusing when he mentions it. But he gives a sense of what it was like back then, not only 
in reference to the scene, like the party scene and the the scholastic scene, but just the geography. He really gives you a good sense of the geography and some of the things that stand out in his head as far as uh, what what was going on uh, in Mora's head at the time. And uh, very interesting, very well spoken. And this is probably going to be uh, one of at least two or three episodes with him. That's right, Lance. We're definitely going to have him back to dig deeper. He's got more thoughts that we did not have the time to get to in this first appearance. So he will be back on. So we really hope you enjoy this episode. And thanks a lot for listening, everybody. Follow us on Twitter at Maura Murray Doc. being joined now by a member of the community named Mike. Mike, how are you today? Doing well, fellas. How you guys doing? Well, uh, before we started this call, you said that you couldn't complain. We asked you how you're doing. You said you couldn't complain. So I'm going to steal your answer right there. I can't complain in, in uh, the grand scheme of things, uh, doing pretty well. Uh, you are a member of the Maura Murray community. You have looked into her case and you've looked into a lot of the elements of the case, which we will get into. What first brought you to the case? I mean, that is ultimately the first question that I think we always have to ask somebody is what brought you into the case? And what was the hook that you were like, I, you know, months later, you're still looking into it. Years later, you're still looking into it. Is it coming back to one hook or is it multiple hooks now? I mean, I, I think for me, like it is for anybody, it's a confounding mystery. And so once you find out a little bit about it, it's impossible to let it go because it just continues to, to build and how confounding that it is. What hooked me on it is I'm a proud alumnus of UMass. And I was there at the time. Um, I was a journalism student. I was working at uh, the Massachusetts Daily Collegian, the finest student newspaper in the country. And uh, this was obviously a big story for us. We had a student who was missing um, and it was one of those things where it didn't, it wasn't the great Maura Murray mystery back then. You know, I worked in the sports department, but the stories that were significant were things we talked about, you know, at night when we're all putting out the paper and this was a story. And so it became a little bit more of a story as it went along and long story short, I was never really able to let it go for exactly what I just mentioned. It's just such a mystery. And I just remember there being a point where, we as student reporters, and we had some, you know, some reporters on that staff at the time who were gone on to do some amazing things in journalism. I mean, real reporters who just said, this, this story is too strange. It's too big for us. We need to let it go. But I don't think any of us at that time ever fully let it go. And so I've been here for 16 years. I am not into true crime. You know, I don't follow any other cases. I'm probably the only person in the world that hasn't seen that making a murderer as the case became more well-known that I have some you know, mutual friends with her. Um, and, you know, she's a girl that could be any girl I grew up with. Um, you know, her parents, her, her siblings, they sound like people I know. Um, it, it resonates with me in that sense. Um, you know, she was a student. I lived in the next dorm over. Uh, it, there's just a lot of connections at the time. And then when you throw what the mystery is on top of that, it's been, I don't want to call it an obsession, but maybe a small step down from that for me ever since. 
Well, you're one of the few people that has approached us and we've had conversations outside of this show that actually was there at UMass while Mora was there at UMass. And you were not in close uh, connection. You didn't have a close connection with her uh, as a relationship goes. Uh, you, you weren't like friends with her or anything, right? I've never met Mora in my life, to, to my knowledge. Um, like I said, I, I didn't find out until years later probably later in the Facebook era that I had mutual friends only because, you know, I'd share things on my personal page on the anniversary and I'd have people comment. And I realized, you know, I went to high school with people from her town and I knew I had some loose connections, but I know of no time that I've ever met Mora or any of the other major players in the case in my life. Um, you know, I've always kind of gone back and forth with, wow, I wonder if I was ever in the dining hall with her or in an elevator with her. But I know of no time that I've ever crossed paths with her. So I know I, I don't know anybody personally, um, you know, that's closely involved in the case. And and another thing uh, real quick about the UMass time period, you said it wasn't uh, Maura Murray, the missing person when it first happened. Uh, first question is, what was it when it first happened? And the second question, you were a sports reporter for the newspaper. Uh, did you have a uh, was it more of a priority for the sports department because she was an athlete? No, it, it really wasn't. It was more of a case of when you work in a student newspaper, you're working for peanuts all the time. It's really what you major in. And so you spend all of your time in the newsroom when you're not in class. And so there's a group of, you know, 12 or 14 of us that were pretty much always there. And that encompasses all the departments, sports, news, arts. So when there's a news story that's all of our story you know the the fact that it that she was an athlete I didn't know of her it wasn't like she was you know well known the Olympic sports aren't quite as big either so it wasn't like it was a big story from that sense but I'll be honest it, it wasn't a it wasn't a huge story uh you know Patrice Vasi was a much bigger story of that same weekend and I think the big reason for that is is that it had that close proximity to campus it was right there and so there was local coverage from the local papers, from our paper. Um, it was, you know, kids felt the connection to it because, you know, a lot of us had been where Vasi got hit. Mora was much more removed from this and she was far away. And I'll be honest, in the early weeks and months, it sure seemed like somebody who just went up there to commit suicide. And, uh, you know, I don't say that to be insensitive. It was just, that was kind of the feel was, it's hard to look back on Mora now and understand why people treated it the way they did at the time, whether it's people at UMass or people at the scene. But you have to remember in February of 2004, you didn't know that it was this big confounding mystery. It, it had all the makings of somebody who went up there to, you know, to do self-harm or something like that. And so I think a lot of people wrote it off until it started to string itself out a little bit longer. Well, that's really uh, interesting perspective, um, hearing that the Vasi hit-and-run accident from earlier that weekend, the same weekend, really, that Mora went missing was a bigger story at the time at the school paper. And I guess it makes sense because Mora went missing in the White Mountains um, over 100 miles away from campus and um Petrie was also a student but that happened right around the corner did anyone at any point think that the two were connected i mean no i i don't i don't think that that connection was was floated or made right away but i think you have to remember and i think this gets lost in a lot of shuffles for people who aren't familiar with umass umass is a huge place 
it has 25,000 students of a lot of different ages and a lot of different, you know, grad students, undergrad. It's not this proverbial college campus that you think of where like word gets around and everybody's talking about the same thing. It's its own city within a few square miles. And so there isn't a lot of ability to capture the whole campus. And so I think that, you know, what, what undergrads read about in our paper may not be what, what grad students read about, what other people on campus. I think people could resonate with the Vasi hit and run because people at UMass all do the same type of things on the weekend. They go uptown to the bars, they find themselves walking back home in different places. They could picture themselves being in that situation. And it was kind of open-ended. It was out there. It was very serious. It had immediate coverage in the local paper, not just our paper. Whereas Mora didn't have a lot of information coming out right away. It was, this girl went up to New Hampshire and they can't find her. But as you guys know, a lot of the early talk was, you know, the squaw walk. I hate to throw that out there, but the, the suicide idea. And so that, that first kind of narrative is often what captures people's attention. And so I really think that people jumped right on to the fact that this Maura Murray thing was this girl was trying to get away. There isn't this, you know, all this crazy series of events that we know now. Once those things started to come out, people who were paying attention realized that there was a lot more here. But in our short New England attention spans, by the time all that started to come out, campus had moved on. And I, I'd be comfortable to tell you that a lot of the people that I know, a lot of my friends, by 2005, 2006, if you ask them, hey, who is that girl that disappeared in February of 04? They wouldn't remember. And I, my friends would laugh at that because they all listen to me talk about it all the time. But it, it moved out of the public realm pretty quickly. What is it about the case? Because you said a couple things like, um, you know, you guys kind of knew that there was a lot more here when, you know, years later or a year or so later when the case of Maura Murray kind of took all these crazy twists. And then when it first happened, you said that this story seems maybe too big for us and got to get someone else. Like, I guess, why did you feel those ways in the, in, in those eras? I think it's it's the same reason why after 16 years of looking at this case, I don't have a theory on what happened to her is because anytime you start to go down, I mean, I don't have to tell you guys this. Anytime you, you start to go down a rabbit hole where you start to try to answer a question, you hit an immovable object. There's something like, I don't understand why this happened, or I don't understand why this happened, or how do you explain this? And I think, you know, if you would to go back and look at like our coverage as a student newspaper of this, of this case, You'd see a lot of, you know, I don't want to call it original reporting, but like talking to kids on campus, stuff like that. But then eventually we realized that in order to do this case justice, we had to have feet on the ground up in Haverhill. And when we didn't have that, that's when we had to give up. And then so you start to see our reporting ends up being just us taking reports from the Caledonian Record or a lot from the Boston Globe, stuff like that, because you had to start looking into more things to explain it. And we realized that First of all, we didn't even know where to start because there were so many unexplained things. And second of all, we didn't have the ability to ask or answer some of the questions that were out there because they were starting to stack up. And I mean, now when you look at it in retrospect, it's clear that's because it's, you know, it is what it is. So when when you were um, with your 
fellow reporters uh, and you were realizing this at the time that that's accurate right you were realizing this at the time that we we don't have the access to go to the scene of the accident uh it seems like there's more layers here than we're capable or uh you know just you you had the bandwidth to to handle um it's still kind of baffling to me that and even though it is a school of a large size that it did have that impact but still it it just sort of petered out months later. It, was it because other things came up and you were writing about, um, did it always stay with you? I mean, it definitely always stayed with me. Yeah. And I, I've batted around ideas of other, with other people, you know, in the newsroom at that time in, in years past, you know, years later. So I know that it stuck with other people. I don't really know why it completely died out everywhere you know it died out for us because we just didn't have the resources to pursue it and i mean again i'll double down on the fact that some of the reporters in that newsroom are working in major national outlets in sports and news now like very very capable competent student reporters and i think i I remember that being the the almost the line i don't want to say verbatim of this is getting too big for us but i don't think enough people on campus saw it through to the same point that we did when you start to get to some of the mysterious parts. Like if you just look at it from what it is back then, it was a girl who left campus, packed up her dorm, lied about her, you know, a death in her family, drove to New Hampshire and disappeared in the mountains. And then the first reports coming out were Jeff Williams saying, we're concerned that she did harm to herself, her dad supposedly talking about that. And immediately that initial narrative is that. If you dismissed it at that point and you didn't persevere like some of us did in the newsroom, you wouldn't realize that there are tons of layers of mystery just beyond that surface level. And I would say the vast majority of people did not get to that point. But like you guys know, anybody who's listening knows, once you get to that point, it's like the point of no return. I dare anybody to get that far into this case and not still be hooked on it. I just don't think enough people got that far with it. Yeah. Those are fair points. Yeah, and obsessions, you know, not necessarily a bad thing when it comes to this. Um, one uh, one question I'm, I'm curious about is, uh, did, did you or anyone at the collegiate that you know of speak with the UMass police back in those days, like to, to further those articles? So I don't want to speak on that definitively because, like, I I don't think that I could say for a fact, like, yes, we did, no, we didn't. What I know is is the reporters that covered that case would have gone through a checklist of all the people they knew they needed to talk to. And they certainly talked to UMass police and all those various officials on campus whenever they needed to. We covered a lot of big stories back then. And so I know that they, I would feel confident in saying that I would be shocked if they didn't. And I, you know, I've heard a lot of people ask in, you know, in later years, like, well, did UMass police, reach out to the student body? Did they say anything like, hey, we have a missing student or anything like that? It never, in my recollection, ever took on anything like that. I don't ever recall, and I'm pretty confident in saying this, that there was any kind of, you know, talk around campus like, oh, the police would like to let everybody know that it's okay, or that you should be on the lookout for this, or, you know, missing posters. I, I don't remember any of those things, and I feel like I would have. Or even that, that there's any danger on campus or anything like that. Right. I, I do not 
ever recall there being that level of connection to the UMass campus. I, I just, it always struck me as being very removed from what was going on at UMass because it happened so far away. And when you look at it in retrospect, it's, it's a little bit strange in a vacuum that a student goes missing, stays missing. I was there for another two years after this, and it never really comes back to the campus. I mean, it didn't. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And we'll get to where it where it ended up, which is in New Hampshire. I just have uh, one question <laughs> until you say something else that makes me think of another question about the days at UMass. Are all the articles that were written by UMass um, at the time, are, are, are all those out there? Can you access those? Or are there some art- articles that were written that you've noticed aren't out there and, and you have access to that you'd like to share? So part of what makes the Massachusetts Daily Collegian the greatest student newspaper in the country is back at that time, that's when we started to realize that you needed to keep an internet archive. The, the, the paper's website, which is a lot more advanced now than it was then, was in its infancy in those days. And that was a big part of our job. Journalism looked a lot different in 2004 than it did back then, was the idea that we needed to start and maintain a website that kept an archive. And so they, those articles, to my understanding, still exist if you go to the Daily Collegian's website and you can Google them and search them and anything. And it's interesting. The one thing that I haven't done is I saved the majority of my articles, which were all related to sports. You know, I used them, saved them for my own collection, but also I used them to send off to clips when I started applying to journalism jobs and whatnot. I've, I've always told myself, I still have them, that I should go back and look to see what I have in hard copy because, you know, for example, anything that comes over, you know, on the weekend, on a Monday paper, even though I wasn't writing about Maura Murray, I could have been writing about UMass basketball. And so I could, you know, inadvertently have a newspaper that has some of that content. But I also don't know if that's even necessary because I'm pretty confident that the Collegian has done a good job of archiving a lot of those things on their website. They certainly have a hard copy archive on campus of every edition that's ever been published in hard copy. And that you can definitely find. All, all in hard copy. They didn't keep it in a basement that eventually got flooded? Well, funny you mention that because the Collegian actually works in a basement. And that is one of the, the most illustrious places on the UMass campus. And I'll just say this, that if a flood ever came to the, the Collegian basement, it wouldn't know what it was messing with. So I'm sure that, that, that those archives have been maintained, unlike some others. Well, that's good to know. Uh, yeah, that, it does sound like all too often it feels like uh, there's a flood uh, and, and some files uh, from a cold case are uh, ruined. So, um, so that's good to hear. When you were at UMass, I guess let, let's quickly ask about the party scene there, because I know there's a lot of talk about the party scene at UMass. What, uh, what, did, what did you experience um, in, in regards to that? So, I mean, I think the biggest thing you need to understand is that UMass is divided into these different residential areas, and they all, they all kind of have their own personality. And you know, I, I should say personality. I mean, other people might call them stereotypes, but at the same time, people have a certain destination in mind most times when they apply to UMass. And for a lot of people, they want to live in Southwest, which is where Maura lived. I lived there too. Um, Southwest, I don't know the exact statistic, but I want to say, even though it's one of however many residential areas, I want to say it holds like 60% of the undergrad population. It is itself a a small city with these five 22-story high-rises 
It's a lot of kids crammed into a small area. And don't get me wrong, it's a lot of fun for the best years of my life. Um, but UMass is a very hedonistic place. And it is the type of place where you can go out and find just about anything that you want to find. And it's there for you. And the majority of people know how to handle that, but not everybody does. And it's also the place that it's so large that you can, you can get lost there, but you can also feel pretty alone there. You know, you can get lost in the anonymity too. Um, you know, I consider that in considering, you know, what we don't know about the days leading up to the fateful weekend or even some of the hours in between on Sunday and Monday. But in terms of the, the party scene, it, you know, that's what UMass is known for. I mean, ZooMass is, is ZooMass for a reason. And, you know, as much as they've tried to move away from that moniker over the years, I mean, those of us that went there, we cherish that. And that's, that's part of the personality is it's a collection of everyday people from all over Massachusetts and New England. Not necessarily your highest achievers, not necessarily, you know, your, your low, it's, it's your everyday people all put together in one place and doing what everyday people do, which is figuring out at that point, you know, how many beers you can drink, uh, how many people you can meet, you know, all the different things like that. It's, it's very college centric. And Southwest in itself is the zoo within the zoo. There is a lot going on. And there are a lot of both irresponsible and responsible things happening. And I think specifically, the big change from what it looks like now is the area coming into campus along North Pleasant Street, that used to be frat row. And if you saw that back in 2004, that was, that was a party strip for, for mostly undergrads. You know, you wouldn't really get caught there as a junior or a senior, maybe. But at the same time, that was a, a gathering spot for, you know, Fridays and Saturday nights. And then the streets off of that, Fearing and Phillips and some of those other streets, those were real high rent districts where people would, would you know, if you scored a house there, People wanted to come to your house because you could walk there from campus. And so there were houses on those streets that hold, that held some real, you know, some real ragers back then where you feel like everybody was there or said they were there. But I think it's important to remember that a typical night at UMass is not necessarily going to one place. You know, I, I think this has come up a lot lately that this idea of, well, where was this party on Saturday night? I think you have to consider that there might have been two parties at the very least. Because a typical Friday, Saturday, or even Thursday night at UMass, you'd, you know, quote unquote, pregame in the dorm. And if you don't really know any different, you'd go to a pregame party and think that's the party. You know, the James Renner's description of how I think it was either Kate or Sarah described it to him as standing room only, you know, packed full of people. You didn't know anybody in there. That's believable. Like, I, I, I do think that some of their memory seems a little selective at times. But I've been in a, in, a, in a dorm party with 20 other people standing room only where I think I knew somebody there and realized I didn't. And then, you know, you go there from 9 or 9.30 at night to 11, 11.30, and then you decide you're going to move it along somewhere else to the real party, which could be up to North Pleasant to Frat Row or up to Phillips Street or, or off to Puffton or some of the other different places that people go. So I think... I've been a big, you know, scrutinizer of kind of the mixed stories of the Saturday night in terms of, you know, never really being able to align with what you hear. But I think it's worth considering that all people considered could be telling the truth because they're there for different portions of a night that involve multiple stops. I would imagine that these parties continue 
well into the evening, into the early morning hours. If you're pre-gaming until 11 or 11.30 or midnight, then your main event is probably going until 3.30 or 4, maybe 5 in the morning. Is that Was that typically the case? Absolutely. And, I mean, if, if you know, Amherst Police does a really – I'll say this. They do a really good job of walking the fine line between not – killing every illegal party that happens 400 times a weekend, but also stepping in when they need to. The biggest way to get a party shut down is to con- continue it past three in the morning with a thousand people there. They, they might show up for that, but that's when there they are might. what, what they call after hours parties too, which yeah. you could have three parties in a night. You could end up at a pregame. You could go to a party till two, two thirty in the morning and then end up at somebody's dorm or somebody's house for an after hours party till the sun comes up. All these things are possible. Yeah, this is uh, great. I, I like uh, opening our minds here with, with this uh, discussion. Uh, wh- one question I have about uh, the dorms, right? We, we know Mora worked uh, as security at the dorms. Was it easy to sneak into those dorms, or was that something that happened? So I've, I've kind of racked my brain about this a little bit. Not that question, because the answer to that question is yes. Mm-hmm. I think people need to understand what Mora's job was. At every Southwest, and I assume most dorms, but definitely in Southwest, there was a desk set up at the front that was only there in the evening. And there was a student who sat there and was they were in charge of only letting people in who lived in that dorm. And you got a little ID card, it looked like a license, and on the back it had a unique sticker for your dorm. When you walked by the security desk at your dorm, you flashed that sticker. They see, they know what the sticker looks like. It could be purple, it could be silver. They say, thumbs up, you live in Kennedy, you can go up. You can also have somebody with you, and you can sign that one person in. It was one-to-one. So me as a resident of Coolidge, where I lived, I could sign in one person with me. If you didn't, they would turn you away. Now, anybody who's lived there knows how to skirt that system. You lose your license, you get a new one, and then you take somebody else's with that sticker. Now you have a sticker for that dorm for the rest of the semester. You know the person working at the security desk. You want to bring 10 people with you. Sure enough, you go right up. Yes, they are supposed to stop you. There's a lot of things going on there. The vast majority of people who sat there at that job had their schoolwork with them. So you would see people sitting there with their books all scattered across the desk, and they're working on homework while they're checking people in. Or, you know, you've heard stories of Maura being on her phone they do that job and they did that job respectfully, but it wasn't like the FBI. They were not, you know, you could walk by them with a bunch of beer and they may look up, they may not. And I'm not saying that's what Maura did. It was very much a student job. Yeah. I kind of remember the, these type of things. And um, maybe if you knew someone, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you were friendly with that person and they had their friend with them. Maybe you didn't sign them in that time. It's like, oh, you waved your thing. Hey, this is okay. Go ahead. I know you. Go ahead. That, that kind of thing happened probably too. You knew, especially dorms that you frequented, who the people were at different times. Somebody would be like, oh, hey, my buddy so-and-so starts at eight. Come after then and he'll let you in. Or, you know, this person is a real stickler don't don't come in at that point you know stuff like that these were definitely the kind of things that you learned to navigate that scene because the the rule was if you didn't live there you couldn't go in that dorm past i want to say eight o'clock if you didn't have permission from a guest who signed you in. i just want to go on the record and say we are not endorsing 
If you are uh, listening at UMass, we are not endorsing, we are not condoning, and this is not an instructional on how to <laughs> sneak into other dorms. Uh, so there's the uh, asterisk uh, disclaimer on that. Um, I have a question about the Christmas break and the spring break and all of the breaks, really. Uh, what What did you do when you returned from a holiday break? Would would you walk into your dorm and immediately unpack? And if someone were to be in your dorm when you were gone, would they think that you had fully packed up your dorm and and you may never come back? Um, was was is it is it typical to look at someone's dorm right after a break and say, "Oh, it was it was it looked like it was packed up." Great questions. And first of all, I'll just tell you, you're right. We, we can't condone this sneaking into dorms, but I guarantee you that anybody who's been to UMass already knows how to do that. And they're just, they probably have new ways that they've discovered that I don't even know about. Um, but at the same time, great questions. It's important to know UMass had by far the longest winter break of any school in Massachusetts, as far as I know. And the word was always that that was because they saved a bunch of money on the heating costs over the month, month of January. So we were out from the week before Christmas till the last week in January every year. We were always home longer than anybody else, at least a week longer than all my other friends that went to different schools. It was a long winter break. You were home for a full month. You could not get back into your dorm before then. People did a lot of different things. You know, you were, you had to do things like unplug and defrost your fridge, um, you know, unplug all that type of stuff. Anything perishable had to go. You were definitely moving out for a considerable period of time. That being said, her boxes being packed is strange. I, I did not ever pack up my stuff like that. Um, I, I don't, I mean, I don't even think I packed up my stuff like that until the second we had to move out on the last day. I don't know anybody else that really did that. Um, I've always tried to reconcile in my mind, you know, is this normal? Is there a reason for that? No, it's, it's strange. Um, I think the thing that makes the most sense to me is the possibility that, she, that like, kind of like you said, that she did pack that up at some point and never unpacked. But at the same time, I, I don't know why that would be. The only other thing that I can think of, and I've kind of batted this around, is, and again, something <laughs> I don't want to condone anybody else doing this either, but you did know people from time to time that had dummy dorms, you know, that lived off campus, but kept a dorm on campus for a number of reasons. For example, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll throw my brother-in-law directly under the bus. My brother-in-law kept a, a dorm on campus when he was dating my sister-in-law. They lived off campus in case he ever needed to go back there, you know, in case they broke up. Did he really want to explain to his parents that he was living with his college girlfriend? So he had a dorm on campus, a single dorm, just like Mora's in Southwest that he never used. And I know other people that had the same thing or people that lived in their dorm, but were cohabitating with another person and never really used it full time. You know, again, I'm spitballing, but you know, if she had another friend or a guy or somewhere else where she was spending most nights, that if she had packed up, even if that had been going on for a few months or even a few weeks, that would explain why she never, you know, was unpacking her stuff. But that's just like almost like desperation spitballing at this point, because I've been trying for so long to explain that. It's definitely strange. When you would get back to UMass, um, having moved back in after the break, 
you you wouldn't find your your stuff in boxes a week and a half later like so that that's the part that that we're kind of talking about here right no yeah. i mean i'll be honest I, I most people at umass don't even box up their stuff so it's just bags or i mean it's like angelina from jersey shore you just throw it in a bunch of trash bags and move out like it wasn't like people were like boxing up valuables and getting u-haul and stuff like move in and move out at UMass was pretty much like pile your stuff in the elevator and see how quickly you can get in and get out. So even the fact that she went to the point of getting them into boxes, I mean, I don't want to speak for everybody, but it's, it's strange. I mean, let let me ask you guys this too. I mean, let me, let me put you guys on the spot for a second here. I think one of the biggest things that I've realized over the last few years is the need for, and, and this is, I want to give you guys credit because you've invited people like me on, I don't really fit this description, but like people who have new objective viewpoints on this case that haven't been drilled with the same information over 16 years. Like I feel like I have preconceived notions now because things have evolved in my mind along the party line, so to speak. People that have brought new perspectives to the case have opened different ways of viewing things to people like me. I have always found it kind of easy to write off that when Karen Mayot walks her back to the dorm and says, hey, let me walk you up, she says, it's okay, I have a roommate. And we came off, you know, for years as saying that was just her blowing her off and saying, you don't need to come up, I'm gonna be fine. I think it's been pretty well proven. She lived in a single. The singles, you know, they're, they're there in Kennedy. It's definitely a thing. How do we know there wasn't somebody squatting in her room? How do we know that there wasn't someone living in the dorm at that time? That we've written this off as just, that's the blow off line, so you don't need to spend any more time with me. But if you look at it from a different perspective, that makes sense to you guys, that maybe that there's somebody was staying with her and maybe her stuff wasn't unboxed because somebody else was using the space? That's a, that a great point. That is a, it's a really great point. I love it when that happens. I love when we have guests on and after 16 years, we can look at this and uh, get something like that, a, a nugget that will make you think about it uh, differently, not just that particular moment, but you can apply that way of thinking to other moments and you and, and it can open you up even further. Uh, so it's it's amazing. I That might have been a passing thought, but you're right. It's it's the it's the. Um, you know, the easy card. It's the, you know, it's the ace that you're just like, I don't have to worry about this because it is what it is. But what if it isn't? You know, uh, it made me think about when she said uh, she called AAA uh, with Butch. Maybe she did. You know, maybe she was about to. And that's when she realized she didn't have service. And that's well, when she, she decided. She needed... yeah. yeah, she was trying to. And she was walking up the street. But a lot of people just write that off as like, oh, she was just lying because she didn't want to get in trouble for drunk driving. But I, I want to focus real quick on on the items uh, still left in the dorm because her bookcase and her computer and I, I believe her printer and so there were things that were still in her dorm. So for her to have boxed up everything, so we're we're saying she moved in at some point in the fall. She brought her bookcase, her computer, and things like that. She left in the winter. I assume she left her bookcase. She might have left her computer. I'm not sure. But at some point uh, after classes in the fall semester she put things in boxes or someone in that dorm put her belongings in boxes left the bookcase but again you kind of said that if you're just leaving for a month and again that's a month maybe boxes aren't is maybe that's a little extreme for only leaving for a month it's more of a trash bag and duffel bag kind of thing i mean i think 
this is another one of those situations where it's hard to understand how to frame it because let's be real. We don't know if she boxed that up in January or December or November, or they've been boxed since August. Like there's like with everything else, we don't really know pretty much anything other than she went to the ATM on that Monday. And so like, it's one of those things that there is such a wide range of possibilities. It's possible that she never slept in that dorm the entire first semester and that her stuff was just moved in there, you know, in boxes from the summer. She planned to sleep in a different dorm the whole time, like some of the circumstances that I described. She still came back to her room to use her computer and stuff like that. I have no proof whatsoever that that, or even an inkling that that's possible. I just, after all these years, these are the kind of expansions in thinking that I feel like you have to start making because thinking about things the same way we have for years, I joke all the time, those of us who've been here from the beginning clearly aren't solving the case because we haven't in 16 years. So it's time to think about them a little bit different. I think the only thing that I can tell you is the boxes, it's, it's strange. It is definitely strange. It doesn't strike you as like, as she just moved back, like end of January, her boxes are there and she's living there in her dorm and working out of her dorm. And then, and then all of a sudden, you know, she just takes off for a week randomly. I do think that is entirely possible, but at the same time, it's one of those that like, it's hard to definitively say, yes, I think that's what happened because why did she put them on her bed? Didn't she sleep there the night before? You know? So it's like. Yeah, I guess that's that's what I'm getting at here is, is that um, if you're there for a few days, a week, or even a little more, and it seems like in the case of Mora, um, and and classes had already begun, you kind of want you want your your room and your desk and your work area to kind of be uh, clean and not um, you know uh, not things cluttered. everywhere, not cluttered. Exactly, that's the word I was looking for. If, if you were using a dorm for everything you used a dorm for, you know, if you were only coming back to the dorm to do some schoolwork and use the computer, you wouldn't care about a bunch of boxes on your bed. Just like if you were only coming back to your dorm to sleep, you wouldn't care if your internet was hooked up, you know, stuff like that. We know so little about what her life was like in the weeks, months prior at UMass. It's just really difficult to nail down what what her intention was. It was simple. Maybe there's a whole backstory to it. Like everything else in this case, it's just so challenging to nail down. Wow. This has really um, made me think about things. I liked when you said that it, uh, the expansion of thinking, uh, it's, it's really happening right now. Uh, Tim had mentioned, you know, a uh, duffel bag. And that made me think about the items that were in her car. And maybe some of those items that were in her car that, we, that we've been questioning and going back and forth on, was it a duffel bag? And there's a backpack and there was a hockey bag. Maybe right, these things bag. never even left her car. Maybe those were always in her car uh, because she just didn't take them out because she was sort of in between dorms and another place. Again, I have no proof of this. Uh, just the other day, I, I mentioned to Tim how I've had a box of uh, crawl space mugs in my car going on a year. I, and it's a joke to me now. Like it, I can easily take them out and put them inside, but uh, for some reason, I just I, they're still there in my car. So it's well, you it's very coffee when you drive, right? <laughs> well, they're still wrapped in bubble wrap and stuff, and we still owe several to people who listen to the show. But um, no, it's entirely possible in my head to think that she would have packed something up or 
been transient between different locations and this was sort of her in-between bag you know the the hockey bag or whatever it was the gym bag was her in-between bag and you you also just said maybe she used her dorm for schoolwork to to on the computer uh to to use the the computer and to and to do some schoolwork and there's very little information that we know of aside from some printed up directions to a possible location and the uh, the searches on alcohol abuse to fetal or fetal alcohol abuse uh, on her computer. What if wherever else she was kind of bouncing around to and from, she was using those computers? Uh, you know, like, I don't know if I've ever thought of that. Maybe there are computers there that she had borrowed and had looked something up that was very specific to where she was going. Yeah, I mean, I've I've seen it mentioned before, and I subscribe to that, that I think it's hard to nail down the items in her car as not being just, quote unquote, college car. You know, there was like a random Chrysler part in there and a bunch of other different stuff. Uh, who knows what was thrown in when? I would like to think that printed MapQuest directions would have a date on, you know, maybe the top or the bottom, that little print strip that comes out so that they know that that was when it was printed out. But, you know, I go back and listen to old episodes of yours and, and, you know, different things. And I listened to a Clint Harding episode recently where he talked about that they had just been there the previous Columbus Day. So are some of those, you know, from that, it's, it's really hard to nail it down. I just, I think people need to understand that for lack of a better way to explain it, when you get into your groove at UMass, it is a freewheeling place. You don't think of it as the typical college existence where you go to class, you come to your dorm, you go eat lunch, you go and just rinse, repeat all the time. People start to do things and live lives that they didn't live back at home because they can. And you might be sleeping at other people's places. You might be, um, you know, coming and going and going places on the weekends and doing different stuff like that where your life may not follow a regular pattern and leave some of these kind of questions about, you know, who and what and when and where. And I think given what we do know about Mora, and obviously the fact that the evidence seems to point that there was some type of, I don't want to call it a break, but she clearly had something that happened to her that weekend, that her life was, was moving fast and furious at that point, possibly. And that a lot of these things that we don't understand or we chalk up to one thing could be something different. And I say that because that doesn't help us figure out what that means. It just kind of muddies the water a little bit more. But but that's legit. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity. And the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. What about the, you know, since we're talking about UMass, I just, a couple of things I want to ask questions about. The um, the Patrit Vassy hit and run uh, as far as you you know, like what, what what do you think the likelihood of that is, of of being Mora? I told you before, like I 
if 16 years, I don't have a clue what happened tomorrow. I don't, I don't like to try to find a theory because I feel like you can't fit a theory to facts. You have to fit facts to a theory. And I haven't found enough facts that lead me in one direction definitively. Cause like, you know, we talked about before you hit a roadblock every time you feel like you're onto something. What I have is a list of things that I feel like need to be ruled out. And Vassie's on that list. I don't think there's any evidence that definitively says that she, or even implies that she hit Bassie. If anything, I think it's hard to, to put her in that spot. And I'll, I'll get into that a little bit, but it's just such a coincidence that it almost makes too much sense to rule it out. Because for me, if you were, you know, I'm an Occam's razor kind of guy, give me the simplest possible solution. But if you were to tell me, hey, she hit Bassie, she damaged her car, she called Fred, he brought her money, she told him, you know, he, he told her to go as far away as you can, get the car fixed, chill out for a little bit and come back. That makes a lot of sense. There's no evidence whatsoever that points to that being the case. But it's one of those, you, you, you know, you listen to enough true crime, you have people that think that that's the case, definitely. Here's my issue with Bassie. If you don't understand what Southwest is like, I mentioned before, it's its own little city. It's a walking city. It is not a drive up and park your car near the dorm type of place. If anything, any type of parking spot where you could leave your car for more than a couple of seconds within a close walk of her dorm or where she was working was extremely hard to find. We had what's called the horseshoe, which is kind of like the little semicircle right in the middle where you could find a meter, and it was like a blood sport trying to find a meter there to get a car parked close enough. Long story short, there is nowhere that she could have parked her car on a Thursday night where she could have popped out of, out of that job, ran out in her car, and popped back in. The lot that she had a sticker for, that's the worst lot on campus, and that's a solid 7, 8, if not 10-minute walk from a Southwest dorm. I had a, a sticker in the other lot that was in that tier, and it's the same thing. You wouldn't go places because of how long it took you to walk to your car. Now, on a Friday or the weekend, you could park closer because the lots weren't, you know, you wouldn't get towed. But 24 hours a day, if you pulled your car up to one of the dorms, you might have 20 seconds with your flashers on before you got approached and told to move it. If you left it there, you were getting towed. So I have a hard time picturing her dipping out of her job, popping in the car, driving somewhere, hitting him, coming back, and doing that and not having it take 45 minutes. And I, I think here's the other thing, taking it a step further. That area where he was hit, very, very common spot. I've been through there a million times. I used to live near there. That was a very common pass-through between campus and the downtown area and points east. So if you were coming to campus from, from the east, from where, you know, if she was coming from Hanson, if you were coming from the north, coming down from Route 2, down to 202, you would take that Triangle Street, past Mattoon, up to North Pleasant as a way around downtown Amherst. And it would drive you right down into campus. So any of us that have gone east from there have been through that stretch a million times. That being said, if you're not trying to go east for a specific reason, there is nothing over there that I could think of that would be somewhere that she would be going in the middle of her work shift. You know, there's Bruno's Pizzas right there, but Bruno's Pizza is one of the most well-known places to deliver anywhere in Amherst. You would never go there to pick up a pizza. 
I can't think of anywhere that she'd be going in that area in a quick in and out trip that would bring her over there in the middle of her shift. I have two questions. What was uh, the street parking? Was that permit street parking? And my other question is the direction uh, that, that you'd be going when uh, Vassy was hit, if a car hit him going in that direction, I want to be clear, is that towards where she was working that night? Or was that towards where her car would have been parked, the lot that she had the pass for? So the what you call street parking, the horseshoe, it, it's called the horseshoe because it looks like a horseshoe, and it's, it's meters. And so it's like a semicircle, and it's all metered spots, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you, like I said, you'd often jockey for those spots because they were the only spots even somewhat close to the dorm where you could pull in. But even then – if she jumped out of her job to walk to her car in the horseshoe, it's still going to take her five minutes desk to, to driver's seat. So it's still not like it's right outside. Okay. Uh, let me, let me be more clear on that. The, 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 the streets that say um, the like fraternity row, it, it, could you park your car on one of those streets? No. So North Pleasant street, which is what runs along what used to be frat row did not to my recollection have parking at that point. And so I, and you certainly, I mean, any time that I've ever been there, you did not park your car. I mean, most of the time you would walk or you'd park if somebody had, like some of the houses on Phillips Street had big lots in the back and you could sometimes park there. But street parking, no, I, I do not remember ever parking. And I used to live on North Pleasant Street a little bit further up and we could only park on the street on the weekends. It was residential permit only, you know, for town of Amherst, I think during the week. Okay. Because what I'm kind of getting at is people have looked at the damage on Morris car and said, this is consistent to perhaps hitting a person like Vassy. And I'm wondering if what your thoughts are that somebody else might have been borrowing her car might, might have gone somewhere and grabbed a bite to eat, hypothetically, and was taking her car back to her, hope, hoping to find a parking spot and hit Patrit Vassy along the way en route to returning her car. So I think two things to that. First of all, where Vassy was hit would, is still too far away to be. That's, I mean, you could walk to campus from there, but that's a long walk. You're still too far at that point, but you're not that far. What I would say in my layperson's opinion is, if there was a scenario where Vassy got hit and it is involved in this case somehow, I would be much more likely to believe that it was somebody else in her car than it was her in her own car. Because I can, there's a number of reasons. I say that, the, you know, there isn't like a, an easy reason to go out there. You're, there isn't. You know, I can't think of a, a place off the top of my head where like, hey, I'm working at night. I'm going to pop over to this place off of Triangle Street, no. But I also, there's apartment complexes out there, there's houses out there, you could have been going to somebody's house. I could definitely see a situation, first of all, I could definitely see a situation where you're flying down Triangle Street. I've probably done that. You, you can definitely see that. It's a little cut through to go from one street to another between two main roads, I can see that happening. I could see somebody being in a, in a hurry, trying to get back and doing that. I think, and... This is where maybe you guys can clarify a little bit. I think where I struggle with that a little bit is when does Maura find out about this? Because I'm, 
not a phone records guy. I've certainly read enough about phone records, but I'm not one of those people who can pour over a list of numbers and make a lot of sense of it. But I know she was on the phone with Bill at some point. I know that Kathleen's phone call came earlier than that. If somebody else did this, wouldn't there have been a frantic phone call at some point then? I mean, you'd think so. If if whoever did that had a cell phone on them, they, they could have called or they would have had to have found a parking spot, I guess, inconspicuous enough where fresh damage wouldn't be immediately recognized. And then they would have to use a landline or they would go in and tell her in person that I just did it. But it it is it is a, a bit of a reach to think that uh, and have that news be translated back to her so quickly um and then have her make this like very quick decision you know that I, i'm now leaving because of this and we're going to cover up the damage i i really think that if a if a if a college student a friend of hers were to do something like that i don't know how long they would go before saying telling that to anybody because uh, they could simply say i skidded off the road and hit a guardrail yeah I agree. And I think my question to you was kind of rhetorical because I do have some thoughts on this. Here's the thing with that. The number one place to hide a car that's been damaged that was that you want to be inconspicuous, it's a lot she had a permit for. I mean, the, the yellow lot 12 is the most out of the way forgotten place that nobody ever goes on campus. And again, I say that like, it's hard to sit here and theorize about her or anybody else in the family being involved because you don't want to put that on anybody. But I think at the same point, it's worth saying that we owe it to everybody, including them to pursue every angle because every angle that has been pursued hasn't turned up anything. I do think that given what we know about the phone records, that if, if it went down, it went down kind of as you just alluded to in the sense that, they weren't able to call and tell right away that maybe they went and hit the car and then the conversation about what happened took place later. But here is the big missing piece for me. And one of these, let me start by asking you guys this. Do you know if there has ever been any review or the ability to review the text messages from her phone? We don't know if they have been reviewed. We know, we do know that she did text um, uh, then that was per bill. He had said that they did text a little bit and we appreciate that answer from him. Um, but no, I, I do think that, um, because Moore's phone is missing, um, and has never been recovered. I, I think it is a very real and, and probably really, really likely possibility that, uh, a lot of those texts have never been read by the police. Cause here's a couple of, of points to that. First of all, that's obviously a huge hole because, Texting was just starting to become popular back then, and that was a means of communication. But an even bigger hole, and I know this has kind of been discussed in some forums, is the dorm phones. Because in those days, we used our dorm phones pretty consistently. And it was a pretty easy system where you basically had a four-digit number. UMass has its own phone system. Everything was 545, 546, 547. And to call another dorm, you punched in four numbers and you got that dorm. Now, you didn't call everybody that way, but this was back in the nights and weekends was the only time that was free cell phone days. So you got used to calling your dorms and you knew the people's dorms that you were close with. You knew their numbers. And 
I think there is a big missing piece in the fact that I think it's very possible that she did a lot of communicating through dorm phone and we don't know anything about it. And I think that is evident in the calls made to the dorms, not only her dorm, but Kate's dorm and I believe Sarah's dorm too from Bill's cell records that there was communication on those dorm phones. And another piece of information that I have really tried to dig up and maybe you have a listener out there somewhere who fits this description, but I did not have any friends that worked that particular security job. And the friends that I have asked about this don't seem to remember. I seem to recall there being a landline phone at the security desk. And, you know, in my dorm in Coolidge, it was temporary because the desk was temporary. But I could swear that I remember people working that job talking on a landline phone. And it would make sense because that would also be a way for supervisors to communicate with different desks. We don't necessarily know that she didn't take a call on a landline at that point. And again, I'm, I'm theorizing, but even, even in a bigger sense, the dorm phone situation, that's a thing. And it's definitely a big hole. Yeah, I, I want to say that when we had uh, Karen on the show, uh, Karen Mayotte, I, I want to say that she did say that there was uh, a phone that was there because she referenced Mora's cell phone, and we were, we were, and we were saying how she technically wasn't supposed to be on her cell phone. Uh, if she needed to call anybody, she would use the maybe maybe I'm misremembering this, but that's the way I understood it. That there was no need for her to have a cell phone if anything were to happen. There was the I don't know if she used landline, but she said there was like the security desk phone. Uh, I could be wrong on that. That might have just been something that she talked about off the air. But I want to say I, I remember that. Uh, and it just makes sense that there would be a, a landline there on the security desk because wouldn't you want to call up to a dorm at a certain point if, if there was an emergency or something? It just seems irresponsible to not have a phone there. And I think, I mean, again, you don't want to theorize without facts, but if you think about how that fits together, you know, this happens, whether it's when she's on the phone with Bill or at another time she gets a call on that phone, she finds out, let's just say whether it's this or anything else that made her upset, or even if it wasn't something that made her immediately upset, but somebody said, hey, we need you to come meet me here in your dorm in this place right now, you need to get out of work. I'm not saying she faked that episode. It sure did not seem from everybody's description like she faked that episode on Thursday night. But something happened, and I think it's it's still kind of a stretch to pin it on the call two hours previously with Kathleen. So maybe there was a call that we didn't know about or some type of tip-off at some point, whether it's Vasi, which, again, I, I still think is hard to, to, to connect or anything else. Something Something happened whether it was that night or previously or something again or continued through the weekend, something happened at UMass. And who knows if that's the reason why she's missing or if it has nothing to do with it, but it's a big part of this mystery. Mike, I wanted to ask one other question about um, UMass. And uh, we, I think we, we have to have you back for a part two um, because this is, uh, this is going really well. And we, we have focused really all on UMass Amherst. I didn't even uh, think that that was going to happen. I have a I have a list of questions that take place uh, at the accident site and did not touch them. M- More Murray's crash at UMass. I guess. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this? And I know the the actual crash site, the one the the accident in her dad's Toyota, 
uh, the one that she got into uh, Saturday night, early Sunday, um, was was really like a stone's throw from campus. I guess, can you explain to us a little bit about the geography of that and how that accident, uh, you know, feels to you? Yeah, very similar to um, to Triangle and Mattoon, where Vassie was hit. Very common pass through. Um, in this case, typically going east on Route Nine. I'm sorry, west on Route Nine. Um, you know, if you if you think of like where she went to the liquor store, if you know the area, um, or even if you don't, there's a main stretch University Drive that goes basically right from her dorm right out to Route 9, and it's got, uh, you know, a big Y supermarket, a bunch of bars and restaurants. It has that ATM. It, it's a pretty busy stretch. And then there is another road that runs parallel to it that is a much more sleepy and quiet stretch where, not to paint too fine a picture, but if you were driving somewhere at 2.30 in the morning, that would be the way that you approached Route 9 as opposed to going right down the middle of University Drive. It's more convenient to go that way, it's a very common way to leave campus heading that way. Essentially, if you are at her dorm, you're driving, you know, right out campus heading west, and you pass the Mullen Center, you know, the basketball arena on the right, and then just a little stone's throw, you hit the town line to Hadley, and then right beyond that is this T intersection. And it's exactly that. The road that used to be Massachusetts Avenue on campus just ends and there's a big yellow sign that used to be that, you know, shows you that you have to go left or right. And you take a left, and that's the road that runs parallel to University Drive. If you keep following it out, it brings you right back out to Route 9. And so it's another way to kind of go out to Route 9 or to where Fred's hotel was without driving straight down University Drive, having to take a right onto Route 9. You've got a lot more lights that way. I would say having lived in that area, if I was going to where her hotel was, nine and a half, if not 10 times out of 10, I would have gone the way that she went just because it's easier to go that way. And it sounds like, you know, she was going too fast and slid right through that intersection and hit the T. I think this is one of the things that I struggle with more than anything is how did that go down without her getting sighted? And again, I don't want to say I know she was drinking and driving. I don't know that. But what I do know is that there are a lot of situations like that that occur where there seems to be a lot more scrutiny on what's going on in that case. And I do find it hard to understand how somebody had been partying all night. And then, first of all, why they decided to go back. I mean, I think that's my biggest question is. Why did she decide to go back? I think there's a huge answer there that might explain some. Why did she feel like she needed to return Fred's car in that moment? But then why, why did she just get a ride away and then everything was fine? Um, it's, it's hard to, to understand that. But her being there, going where she was going, completely normal. That is absolutely the way that I would have gone in that same situation. I might throw another layer on the whole why uh, element here. Fred, Fred's in town. Fred has his has his uh, kind of new car, his Toyota. Uh, presumably, she drops him off after dinner at his at his motel, takes his car back. Parking is not at a premium over the weekends, or it is at a premium. She could have found a much better place to park. 
on a Friday or a Saturday night. Definitely. All, right. almost all the lots on campus are fair game at that point. Okay. So, so she wouldn't have had to like dr- drove around trying to find a spot to park. Maybe she did a little bit, but you know, f- found a spot to park. So, uh, okay. Yeah. That, that, that was my question. I, I was, would it had to have been in like a visitor parking area? No, any student, like you get a, as a student, you get a permit for a specific lot and seniority and commuter status kind of move you up the list. So the yellow lots are the bottom of the barrel and you are far away. When you move up, you get to the purple and the blue lots, which are a lot closer to her dorm. Those lots, even if you don't have a permit, are fair game on the weekend. So she would have just dropped it in the blue lot or... I know there's a conversation about how when they met Sarah that Saturday night that they met her in a student lot. I'd be willing to bet that that was that purple lot because that or the blue lot because that's the number one place where if you needed to pick somebody up at Southwest, you can't pull right up to the dorm. You just meet them in that lot across the street. She could have parked in a lot that was half the distance, if not less, away from her dorm than her normal lot would have been. That being said, I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. I don't know if I would have wanted to leave my dad's brand new car on any college, you know, lot campus. I will say that. Like, it's not totally abnormal. You know what? That's that's like the best reason I, I think I've heard uh, for for why she might have been driving it back to the hotel that night. Yeah. Okay. So if she had uh, these passes that allow you to park your car, they weren't something that was permanently uh, affixed to the back window or to the windshield. She could put that from car to car on a weekend. You didn't need a pass. You didn't need a pass. Right. So on a, like there were some lots and all the lots were signed specifically. Some lots were 24 hours. You could never park there unless you had that pass. All of the student lots were Monday through Friday, whatever it is, seven to seven. And on the weekend, you guys could go roll up there this weekend right now and park there. You didn't have to have a, a UMass permit. So she could have parked her dad's car in one of those closer lots. There's always spaces available, even on the weekends, because they're pretty big. And it would have been a lot better than leaving it in her remote yellow 12, which I would have definitely not wanted to leave my dad's new car there. I would have felt more comfortable leaving it where she did. I do think that that is a plausible reason why she returned it. And how far away from Fraternity Row are the lots that you're speaking of? Walkable in the daytime, less than a mile. Uh, in, in the car, less than a minute. I mean, you'd either go down Mass Ave or Fearing Street. They both run right down there. Here's the other thing about the Saturday night party. If she parked in a lot at the Visitor's Center, which if you look on a map of UMass, you can see where it is, She could have parked there. It would have been relatively close to her dorm. She could have said, hey, we're pre-gaming at Sarah's dorm in Coolidge, and then we're going to go out, right? She could have, with Kate, with whoever, walked up to the car in that lot, gotten in the car. Even if they were going to Frat Row, it's the middle of February. It's freezing. They don't want to walk the whole way. You could get in the car at one end of the visitor's lot, drive to the other end of the visitor's lot, park the car over there, and you're maybe 100 feet off of Phillips Street. So you could have parked in the visitor's lot and left your car there and then still been able to walk around in that area up there. You would be saving yourself, I don't know, maybe five minutes of walking. But if you had to go pick up somebody else in between, like say you had to leave the dorm, get in your car, go get booze, go get somebody else, then come back and park and do that whole thing. 
I could see that being a scenario and then them getting back there and her saying, hey, why don't you guys just go back to the dorms? I'm going to bring my dad's car back. I still think it's strange, but I could see scenarios where that would happen. But I also, as someone who's been a student at UMass, I still struggle with the fact that she had a single car accident at 2.30 in the morning. I don't want to say didn't get sighted. Maybe she hadn't had a drink. But they scrutinized the heck out of UMass kids, especially in the adjoining towns. I'm surprised that there wasn't more scrutiny on her. At the very least, a field sobriety check that made it into there or anything like that, even if she wasn't drinking, that it's a little strange to me. When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization, Private Investigations for the Missing, because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter, Brianna, disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers, but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.